Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. Turn now to 2 Samuel chapter 1. You know that originally the books of 1 and 2 Samuel were one book, and the text tonight in 2 Samuel 1 connects closely to the end of 1 Samuel chapter 31, where we have the narrator's account of King Saul and Jonathan's death. Here we have a similar account in 2 Samuel 1. And if you haven't been with us for the past weeks, for some time now, we've been studying 1 Samuel, and we've seen David as a young man, probably in his mid-teens, when he was secretly anointed king by the prophet Samuel. We've studied his well-known victory over Goliath, but then for many chapters, among other things, we've seen him, it seems, time and time again fleeing from King Saul, fleeing for his life. Again and again, David escapes by a whisker from Saul. And we've even considered two amazing incidents when David could have killed Saul, when Saul, in a sense, providentially fell into David's and his men's hands, but David refused to touch the Lord's anointed king. And by now, at the end of 1 Samuel, and the beginning of 2 Samuel, David is about 30 years old, He's about to become king. He didn't know it at this point. But finally, in the last chapter of 1 Samuel, we have the narrator's sad description of the battle with the Philistines where Saul and Jonathan, Saul's son, are killed. And now in 2 Samuel 1, we have a similar description, this time from the mouth of a very unreliable, clearly dishonest man. But the focus of 2 Samuel 1 is that David and his men receive the sad news with deep grief, and the chapter concludes with David's written lament. So hear the word of God as I read 2 Samuel 1 to us at this time. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage to David. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. 
And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my, fa- my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. There is a lot we could consider in our text, and I'm not going to answer all the questions that you might have about this Amalekite and his story and how much of it was true and how much was it not true, But I want to consider what I think is the main message of 2 Samuel 1, and I want to do that under two main points, David's grief and David's lament. And I want to divide the chapter in half, looking first at this Amalekite and his story and David's grief, and then the actual lament itself. First of all, then, David's grief. A grief for Saul and Jonathan. We see it in the the lament that again and again Saul and Jonathan are mentioned. But also it was a grief for all those who were slain in battle. And it was a grief for a nation facing national defeat by the Philistines. And in even a wider sense, 
David's grief, we could say, was for the condition of God's people. And his grief over God being dishonored and this occasion of this defeat being the occasion for the true God to be mocked. We hear it in the lament in verse 20 when he says, Tell it not in Gath, that's a Philistine city. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, another of the main five Philistine cities. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. Interestingly, the end of chapter 31, we find that they were already exalting. They were already rejoicing. David can bemoan that in his lament, but at the end of chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, we see that messengers are sent throughout the land of the Philistines about the victory. This Amalekite comes with this news and the camp of David is stirred by it. And it's interesting how the narrator, how the writer structures the first half of chapter one because in the center of the narrative, there is in a sense this break in verses 11 and 12. We we might not notice it very much, but the story of the Amalekite, the Amalekite and the interview with him by David is interrupted in verses 11 and 12, which are the structural center of this narrative And there is a description of David taking hold of his clothes and tearing them. And so did all the men who were with him. And it says in verse 12, they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Clearly, David had a concern not just for Saul and Jonathan and his men, but for the wider issue of the people of God and the glory of God. And I think it's so interesting that when the narrator is describing in 1 Samuel 31.9, the good news, he uses that phrase. You know, he actually says that messengers were sent throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news from the Philistines' perspective, to the house of their idols and to the people. So the people of Philistia are rejoicing in the victory not only of their army, but of their idols, their gods with a small g. And in verse 10, we find that there are bodies that are affixed to the walls of Beth Shan. Beth Shan is in the middle of Israel, but there it is. This chapter confronts us with the issue of death and grief and lament. And these are subjects that the Bible never treats lightly. Our society seems to go in two different directions when it comes to facing the realities of death. One direction is to avoid the subject as much as possible. The other is to live as though life goes on forever or to fill your life with so many things that you can somehow escape the reality of death. But death is the great equalizer that comes to all of us until the Lord returns, the great equalizer that hangs over all of our lives, and the good news of the gospel of life in Jesus Christ, our resurrected Lord, is the only true hope in this world 
that is filled with the fear of death. I'm sure that many of you saw parts of the funeral yesterday of Prince Philip. Very stirring funeral, certainly, especially the uh, what struck me was the solemnity of it all. The solemn procession with all of the branches of the military represented and the cannon firing and the bell tolling and all the order and decorum of this well-planned out event and the serious demeanor. No one was laughing. No one was making a joke. I have been to secular funerals where people are joking and making light of death. At least no one publicly took that attitude yesterday in what I saw. And David and his men received the news of Saul and Jonathan and Saul's men, which would have meant his elite bodyguard who were all killed. And they took that news and immediately they go into mourning for the rest of the day. They fast and mourn throughout the rest of the day. And for believers, even though we do not grieve as the world grieves, we're told in 1 Thessalonians 4, and the world grieves without any real basis of certain hope, still Christians grieve. And I know that, that we all know that, but I would especially like us to make application of this principle of David's grief over the condition of the people of God and the dishonoring of God's name here. Why was God's name being dishonored? Why had the nation come to this point? Well, clearly, if we know what First what Samuel teaches us, as we look back, clearly God was fulfilling his word to King Saul that he would cut him off from being king. And in fact, near the end of First Samuel, God had prophesied that Saul would be killed. It all because of Saul's disobedience to the Lord more than once. But clearly, as we read through 1 Samuel, we get a picture of the wider condition of the people of God at that time. And it is not pretty. The people, we understand, sinfully desired a king. They are not content for the Lord to be their king. They want to be like the nations around them. And so the Lord gives them a king according to their desires. And all of that has gone into where the nation is now. God gives them what they ask for, a tall, handsome king. But as it turns out, a king who is an apostate, someone who has turned utterly away from God, a king who is far from God and who murders the priests of God at one point and who fiendishly pursues David for years and a king who finally ends up at the witch or the medium of Endor, seeking guidance apart from God completely, something that King Saul had actually banned from Israel. He seeks her out. And the next day, Saul and Jonathan fall in battle and many other good men with them. What a woeful condition of both the nation and the nation's leader. One commentary that I read on this text was that by Dale Ralph Davis, and he brings the application home to us as the New Testament people of God and our need to, to some degree, 
and at some time at least, grieve the condition of the visible church. Listen to this quote. He says, the same principle should control our life in the kingdom of God. Do we not have an obligation to mourn over the unbelief, apostasy, and coldness in the visible church? It is not difficult for us as evangelicals to observe, analyze, or critique the apathy over faithful doctrine, the flirtations with paganism, the infatuation with the politically correct moral social agenda which infects bodies of the institutional church. The peril in all of this, of course, is that it is so easy to take on a conservative haughtiness, a kind of evangelical arrogance. Rather, such unbelief or error in the church should drive us to mourning and grief and prayer and sorrow. It calls for intercession more than for pronouncements. And I had to look up the copyright of the book because those are words that were penned in 1999. Don't they sound like they're just for us now as well? When we think of how we tend to look at the church and the world, think of it. How do you respond to the news of the day? You know, David got his news by a dusty Amalekite walking or jogging or traveling really 80 miles from Mount Gilboa down to Ziklag, which is in the very southern part of of southwestern Israel. And he wasn't sure about how much of the Amalekite story was true and false. Well, we get our news and it's it's easy to immediately react with anger to the other side, whatever that means, put quotes around it, who are clearly the ones who are the cause of all this mess. And it's possible to start losing sight of God's purposes and God's kingdom. And yes, it's right to respond with letters and actions and involvements and political activity as Christian citizens of our nation. Yes, but here's the question. How often do you let the news of the day drive you to your knees in genuine prayer and intercession and actual mourning and grief, especially prayer for the people of God, the visible church of God, and prayer for the glory of God, even the glory of God being made known through his weak and needy people who are often going astray, that the name of Jesus would be lifted up and exalted and that the gospel would go forth to the nations." This is David's grief, and it should be characteristic of our grief as well. But secondly, our second main point is David's lament. And here we see in verses 17 to the end of the chapter, uh, this beautiful poem that David has written. And it's introduced with these words, David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. Notice that part of David's expression of his grief was a thoughtful and written lament. Apparently, it was first recorded in this book of Jasher, which is no longer in existence, but it's mentioned in the book of Joshua as well. But note that verse 18 says that David wanted this written lament to be taught to the people of Israel. 
what we see here is that grief and lament can not only can be not only spontaneous and informal, and often grief and lament are like that. It just comes out at odd times and in very informal ways in your life and in your heart. But lament can also be thoughtful and formal. There's a place for that. We see this in the Psalms, the Psalms of lament especially, and in hymns. We have hymns in our hymn book that are hymns that are characterized by lament and confession and contrition. And often these written forms give us a vehicle for the expression of grief. And one practical consideration for a grief that we might face would be to seek to write down our lament, as David did. Not that I would be as great or anywhere near to the kind of poet that David was in writing Hebrew poetry, but to write down our lament to give form and substance to the thoughts that come to our minds and to the anguish as well as the thankfulness that we have before God in the midst of our grief. And it might be something that you could refer to and read back over and in a sense learn by heart. But I want us to see as part of David's lament two especially powerful and striking elements that come out in this lament. There are three verses uh, of unequal length in this lament, and the very last is the shortest, the last verse, and they're all introduced by that phrase, how the mighty have fallen, referring to the mighty warriors. But what we see as we read through this psalm is two things that come out. One is David's love for Jonathan. David is lamenting the departure of Jonathan. For example, verses 22 and 23, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back. And by the way, if you notice in your notes on verse 17, it could be that, uh, verses 17 and 18, that you see that it could be that it's, that that word, the bow, is meant further up at the beginning as the title to the lament. And then verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. And then again at the end of the psalm. Much of what we've seen in 1 Samuel over these recent weeks concerns the friendship and the loyalty of David and Jonathan to one another. Really an unlikely friendship when you think of it. David, the greatest threat to the throne, to King Saul, being befriended by the crown prince, Jonathan. And David's reference in verse 26 to to Jonathan's love. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Uh, That reference is certainly not to be interpreted as inappropriate or illicit in any kind of way. No, Jonathan is being described here as David's best friend, an amazingly loyal friend to David when you think of it, even to the degree of Jonathan surrendering the kingship to David. That's actually what we saw when we studied 1 Samuel 18. Jonathan essentially put his royal robe on David and other things that were part of his person. And he essentially was saying, I am surrendering the crown prince role to you. You are going to be the next king. What an incredible act of sacrifice. 
As we watched the funeral yesterday, Patty and I were discussing the idea of whether it might happen that Prince Charles, you know, who's in his early 70s, might give up the throne to his son William. You know, because he's getting up there, and um, probably everybody wants a young king or something like that. And, um, you know, just speculating about that. What if when Queen Elizabeth dies, he would do that uh, so that the crown might pass directly to his son, William? Uh, Maybe, but probably not. Charles has been waiting for 70 years. It's a long time to wait. He probably wants at least a little bit of time of being king, I would think. But um, even if he did that, if he did it, we would think, wow, what an astounding act of self-renunciation that he would let the crown pass over him. But, But Jonathan did this, and Jonathan wasn't even related to David at all. He was his friend. What a sacrifice. He knew that the Lord's anointing and hand were on David. No wonder David was so deeply moved by Jonathan's death. In fact, Jonathan is a prime example of faithful and trusting obedience to God in the sphere and in the place that God had put him, even unto death. Think of it. Not only was Jonathan loyal to David, but he was also loyal to his father, Saul, and to the nation in the place that he served. And what did that achieve for him? It brought him an untimely death, but a death faithfully standing at his father's side. Yes, that was a grievous thing, and David was right to mourn, but there is also the sense that David could know that Jonathan's life was not in vain. It was not apart from the purposes of God. And it reminds me of the two apostles, James and John, the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee. In Acts 12, we read that James is the first apostle to be martyred, killed by Herod, the king. But John, the apostle, lives on and serves the Lord and evangelizes and and is a great blessing to the church for decades, dying as a very old man, probably the last and the only one of the 12 apostles not to be put to death for his faith, according to tradition. But what different paths God had for these two brothers, but both in God's purpose and God's will. And so there was David's love for Jonathan. And yet, the other aspect that we see from this lament is David's respect for Saul. Respect, and we could even say love. Do you realize how very generous David is to Saul in this lament? There is not a word about Saul's sin. There's not a word about Saul's oppression and abuse. Why is this? We might cite various reasons, but the foremost would be this one. David's treatment of Saul in death embodies Jesus' command in Luke 6, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. What? What an embodiment of that command. And here, here's David after years of persecution by Saul and after many close calls with death, There's no trace of bitterness in what we read here. But he can say gracious things about King Saul, knowing all the evil things as well. As one commentator puts it, David's response is not natural to the human heart, but rather 
It is a beautiful flower of God's grace. David is really Christ-like in his respect and love for Saul. All along, David has sought to treat Saul as God's anointed king, and here he does so at the very end. And so we've seen there is much brokenness and sin in 1 Samuel, and 2 Samuel begins the same way. And in the next chapter, David will become king, but that will not be the ultimate solution. It will only point to the greater David, Jesus Christ. Death, grief, lament, these are all part of each one of our lives, but David points us to Jesus Christ. He's the king who points to the king of kings, to the hope of the gospel, to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who loved his enemies, who loved us when we were enemies. And so we are called to trust Jesus Christ, to show his love to a dying and grieving world. And so may the love of Jesus fill us, may the church be revived, and may the glory and grace of our God be made known through us. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this lament, for this inspired and holy story of the death of a king, of the death of a prince, and for David and his example pointing us to Jesus. We thank you above all for Jesus, the one who truly loved us, his enemies, when we were far from him, far from you. Oh Lord, help us to reflect on these things and help us now as we hear these words sung that you would stir our hearts with these words of song and scripture as well. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.